You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 58. Hello again, listeners. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, and I'm here to bring you weekly installments of Fantasy and Wonder. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Now then, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the first part of Chapter 16 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. The following recap will contain major spoilers, so make sure you've caught up with the previous chapters before continuing on with this episode. Metamore City Medical Examiner Morgan Drowling has gotten caught in the middle of a sticky political situation. Several young nobles illegally visited the Telvari Rift, a place bathed in powerful life-aspected mana. The magic of the rift mutated their bodies in surprising ways and gave some of them incredible psychic powers. Unfortunately, whatever changed them also seems to be killing at least some of them. Two of the rift's visitors, Hal Rains II and shuttle pilot Bernard Travers, have already shown up in Drowling's morgue. The rift is controlled by House Kapler, which uses the surrounding jungles as a priceless source of new medicines and alchemical supplies. Baron Kapler's son, Lord Ezekiel, is the one who organized the illegal expedition. Apparently, he wanted to go to the rift so that it would give him psychic abilities. It worked. Ezekiel now has the power to teleport, both himself and other objects. Unfortunately, Lord Zeke is now at least a little crazy. He became convinced that the Lightbringers are conspiring with the Vampire Syndicate to take the Rift's power away from House Kapler, thanks to some photographs he received from a contact inside the Syndicate. Ezekiel tracked down a secret meeting between Janus Starson, the Lothanasi field commander, and two of the Rift's other survivors, Mysteria Halloway, a world-famous advocate for the Church of Hedonism, and Julia Matthias, Zeke's girlfriend and a minor daughter of the powerful Clan Matthias. The meeting was facilitated by Detective Catherine Catane, Morgan's best friend, and her partner, David Silverleaf. Apparently Janus has a plan to help these young women reverse whatever happened at the Rift, at least enough to keep it from killing them but Kate and Janus's plan was blown to the ninth hell when Zeke blew up a skimmer bomb in front of the meeting, just seconds after he teleported himself and Julia to safety. Everyone survived the bombing, but the situation is precarious. Kate is on the warpath, threatening to have Ezekiel branded a terrorist. Julia's location is unknown, and she needs to be at Lightbringer headquarters by nine o'clock tomorrow night and House Kapler has a host of special noble privileges and dirty tricks that they can use to keep Kate and her fellow commoners at arm's length. But Morgan Drowling is not a commoner. She is the scion of a wealthy and powerful noble house, and while her parents have cut her off from the family fortune for now, Morgan still stands to inherit everything when her parents die. More importantly, she has a lifetime of being trained in the games of the metamore nobility. After talking down Kate from trying anything drastic, Morgan heads out with Misty, her fellow house scion. Together, these two noblewomen will do what Kate and the police cannot. Make sure that Julia Matthias makes it safely to her appointment tomorrow night. 
Things Unseen, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 16 Morgan Drowling pulled her skimmer out of the parking garage and onto the skyway, then passed the line of police cruisers that had cordoned off the area around the blast site. One of the police officers watching the barricade looked curiously into her window as she approached from the secured side of the line. He took in the obviously vampiric Morgan and the red-skinned, yellow-eyed Misty and quickly turned away. His body language screamed prey to Morgan's predator instincts. She ignored them, and him, and kept driving. Do you ever get used to it? Misty asked, surprising her both with the question and with the subdued tone. Morgan tried to sigh, then realized she'd forgotten to breathe again and didn't have any air in her lungs to sigh with. Instead, she took a deep breath to reinflate them and said, Ask me in a hundred years, and maybe I can tell you. But no, not yet. She glanced aside at her companion. You've changed since the last time I saw you. Oh? Misty said, politely noncommittal. Your daedrus smell is stronger, more like the real thing. And you've got Kate's illusion magic all over you. Morgan raised an eyebrow. What did the rift really do to you? Misty hesitated, then flashed an ironic grin. I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Morgan considered this. Fair enough. She let her body shift into what she thought of as her combat form. Long black claws, enlarged fangs, pointed ears, luminous yellow-green eyes, and a reshaped skull that gave her a wider mouth with a stronger bite. She bared her teeth at Misty and the other woman grinned back in approval. "'Very nice,' Misty said, giving Morgan a little understated courtly applause. "'The eyes are gorgeous. Now, let's see what you think of mine.' Misty pulled an amulet out from under her shirt and removed it, dispelling the illusion that Kate had crafted for her. Morgan glanced at her, then had to pull off the skyway to get a proper look. She stared openly at the jeweled snakeskin hide, the curving, gleaming ram's horns, the supple tail with that deliciously wicked tip, and the sleek, feminine curves that even the rift could not conceal. Misty's almost feline muzzle opened, revealing perfect rows of glistening white teeth. A long, forked tongue snaked out and flicked against Morgan's cheek. "'Well, what do you think, Morgan?' she asked coyly. Morgan tightened her grip on the steering wheel, acutely aware of how her vampire pheromones were filling the cabin of the skimmer. She cleared her throat. I think, when this is all over, that I'd like you to show me what that tongue can do. Oh. (laughs) All right. Do I get to share blood with you? I've always wanted to try that. Never found a vamp I could trust before. Morgan smiled weakly and forced her body to return to its more human appearance. Um, maybe, but not right away. Trust is important for me, too. Sharing is special. 
That was a woefully inadequate word for the experience, but she wasn't ready to start bearing her soul yet. Not in her words, and certainly not by sharing. She hadn't spent much time around Misty since her late teens, when Misty had been the kid's sister, spying on her dalliances with John. They'd seen each other at parties and other social events since then, but that wasn't much basis for getting to know a person again. Fair enough, Misty said easily. We'll have time to think about it later. She slipped the amulet back on, resuming her humanoid form. Right now we've got work to do. True, Morgan said, as she pulled out into traffic again. Where are we headed? Kapler Tower, Misty said. Zeke's got Julie in the research lab. Morgan spared a sharp glance at her. How do you know that? Misty leaned her head back, smiling enigmatically. I'll explain later. Maybe after our first sharing. Morgan rolled her eyes. Fair enough, she sighed. Trust was a two-way street, after all. So, we see the Baron? We see the Baron, Misty agreed. I love simple plans, Morgan said. It was after midnight, so traffic within the North Valley borough had thinned substantially. Morgan kept off the highways, which were still carrying visitors to and from the downtown sector, and took the back streets to Kapler Tower. They arrived at the fourth-level parking garage in fifteen minutes. The valet stared when Morgan and Misty stepped out of the car. Morgan locked eyes with the young man and smiled. Hello there, she purred, pushing a bit of effort into her domination gaze. Immediately the valet froze, going wide-eyed and slack-jawed. M-m-m-lady? I am Lady Drowling, Morgan said, using her official title as the scion of her house. This is Lady Halloway, but I'm sure you already knew that. Misty smiled and nodded to him. The valet squeaked. We have some very important business with Baron Kapler, Morgan said. Can you tell me where to find him? My lord, doesn't take visitors after seven, the valet stammered. Morgan smiled again as she put her hand on the young man's cheek. This time she showed some fang. My dear boy, that isn't what I asked you. Let's try again. Where can I find Baron Kapler? Penthouse, the valet gasped. East Wing. He pointed to a pair of lift doors that stood a little apart from the others. House access tube. Good boy, Morgan said, stroking his hair. Ring us up, will you? The valet took a code key from around his neck and inserted it into the control panel for the lift. The doors chimed once and opened. Misty and Morgan stepped in, and Misty hit the button for the penthouse. The car slid shut and began to rise. That evil eye is pretty impressive, Misty observed. Don't call it that, please, Morgan groaned. I'm trying to be less evil than the rest of my family. You and me both, sweetie, Misty said. The lift car came to a stop and opened onto a small room decorated in red, black, and white, the colors of House Kapler. The arms of the house hung on the wall opposite the lift, behind a security desk. Chairs lined two sides of the room, like a doctor's reception area. A large, flat-screen TV, a few end tables with magazines, and a pair of doors took up the rest of the space. 
Two large men in Kapler livery glowered up from the security desk as the lift slid open. Morgan watched with amusement as the guards realized their visitors were not human, reached for their weapons, and then actually recognized the two women, at which point they just as quickly pulled their hands away again. Morgan hung back slightly, letting Misty draw their attention, since she had the more famous face between them. "'Good evening, gentlemen,' Misty said, baring her teeth at them. The guard on the left swallowed nervously. "'Milady Halloway. Um, how can I help you?' "'Lady Drowling and I must speak with my father's liegeman immediately,' Misty said. The men's faces took on a trapped look. "'The Baron is asleep, milady,' said the second guard. Misty put her palms on the desk and leaned in close to him. "'Then you had better go and wake him. And when you do, tell him that I'm claiming right of wear-guilt against a member of his house.' The guard looked confused. "'Right of what now?' Misty smiled thinly. "'Wear-guilt. The Baron will know what it means. I suggest you let him decide how important it is.' The two guards looked at each other. Then the first guard forced a smile. One moment, milady. They withdrew to the door at the far right corner of the room and put their heads together. What do you think? The second guard whispered. I think the Baron doesn't want to end up in the tabloids with her. The first one whispered back. As softly as they were speaking, they were no match for a vampire's ears. I assure you, gentlemen, this is not a publicity stunt. Morgan said, cutting into their conversation. I am here as a witness, and if you know anything about me, you know that I have no interest in the attention of the press. Take our message to the Baron. This final push seemed to convince them, and the second guard went through the door at the back of the room, shutting it behind him. Misty and Morgan sat down to wait. More than half an hour went by before the guard returned, he bowed deeply as he faced Misty. Lady Halloway? Lady Drowling? This way, please. The guard took them to a small meeting room with no windows, one door, and a round table that took up most of the space, except for a narrow sideboard at the back of the room. As she settled into one of the leather office chairs, Morgan thought back to previous visits she had made to noble houses as a teenager in tow of her parents, she remembered the sumptuously appointed parlors and sitting rooms, the trays of food and drink carted out by servants, and the way their host met them within minutes of their arrival, even when they came at an unexpected hour. Morgan glanced over at the sideboard. There were several cheap water glasses and an empty pitcher. The whiteboard on one side of the walls still bore the notes from what looked like a budget meeting for Kapler Pharma. Well, at least the chairs are comfortable she thought dryly. It was another fifteen minutes before the Baron finally appeared, dressed in a black smoking jacket that bore his house arms on the breast pocket. He held a cup of some hot beverage, ginger tea with honey, judging from the smell, which he placed on the table in front of him before carefully settling his stocky frame into the chair. Morgan raised her eyes to meet his, and was struck with a flash of vertigo that left her reeling, she flinched away, looked down at the table, as the wave of disorientation passed, leaving a throbbing headache behind. Morgan growled in her throat, then reasserted her will and pushed back her instincts. 
The guard standing directly behind Kapler stood up a little straighter, and Morgan caught a whiff of smug satisfaction as he adjusted the yew-tree crucifix around his neck. Clever. The Baron took a sip of his tea. His dark, intelligent eyes glanced at Morgan and Misty in turn, sizing them up without quite meeting their gaze. All right, Mysteria, Kapler said, setting down his cup. What damned fool nonsense have you gotten yourself into this time? Misty's fingers flexed against the table, but she stopped herself before her unseen claws could gouge any furrows in the surface. This time the damned fool is your son, my lord, Misty said evenly. A few hours ago, Lord Ezekiel set off a bomb in a parking garage. In the process, he nearly killed me, two police detectives, and the local field commander for the Lothanasi Order. I came on the scene with the emergency crew, Morgan said, before Kapler could protest. I pulled them out of the rubble with my own hands. Kapler glared at a spot just below Morgan's eyeline. You're going to accuse my son of attempted murder. You. I refuse to speculate on what was going through Lord Ezekiel's mind, Morgan said. I don't know if it was attempted murder, or reckless endangerment, or something more incomprehensible. His motives are far less important to me than the results. Lord Ezekiel has committed a gross physical assault upon the person of a fellow noble, Misty said, using the formal language that had been drilled into both of them as members of the great houses. I can claim the right of Weregild against House Kapler in the Council of Peers. Kapler's lip twisted into a bitter smirk. The old Count's been making you read your history, I see. But to what end? There hasn't been a Weregild claim for assault since my grandfather's time. If my son has been that damned stupid, why not press criminal charges? Or file a civil suit? Oh, I'm sure it will come to that, Misty said, matching his expression. The police and the Lothanasi can take him through the commoner courts. But for me, I sort of like the idea of making you appear with Zeke in front of all those crusty old house leaders. What do you think the conservatives' reaction will be when they see their party whip standing next to that tentacled freak? Kapler narrowed his eyes. My son is looking quite human again, thank you. Ah, yes, the disguise amulets, Misty said. Funny thing about those... I did some checking on the sort of places I'd have to avoid, and it turns out that illusions of any kind are forbidden in the Council of Peers. I guess there was a case of mistaken identity a few centuries back, when a commoner masqueraded as a nobleman. That's ridiculous. They don't need to see his face to verify his identity. There are DNA scanners, aura readers, retinal scanners. None of which existed when the rule was created, Morgan said brightly. Tradition is such a lovely thing, isn't it? Baron Kapler shot another glare at Morgan's chin, then turned his attention back to Misty. You're bluffing. My men saw what you became when they pulled you out of the rift zone. If that monster shows up in council claiming to be the Count's daughter, he'll excoriate you right then and there. Both our houses will be ruined. What makes you think I care about House Halloway? Misty countered. Kapler's dark eyes glittered with amusement. Of course you care. You may not give two shits about your father's legacy, or the honor of his name, or the fundamental human values he's upheld throughout his lifetime. Misty snorted in derision. Kapler ignored her. 
But you do care about being the next countess. You want that power, that influence. What you're doing right now gets a lot of press and makes a lot of people excited. But in the long run, it doesn't matter. In five years, the tabloids will be running after somebody else. And it won't matter if you're dancing on top of the Citadel naked, because they'll be bored of you. Misty put her hand to her chin, as if considering this. You know, you're right. I do want the chance to make a bigger difference, and maybe the Countship is a way to do that. Her eyes narrowed to slits. And if Zeke's wear guild is the only thing I have to give up to keep that, then I can accept that. But Zeke didn't just try to bomb me and three other people. He also kidnapped Julia Matthias. And that I will not accept. Not for anything. For the first time since entering the room, Lord Kapler looked surprised. Kidnapped? What are you talking about? Lady Julia isn't our captive, she's our guest. I saw her when Ezekiel brought her in. Poor thing looked terrible. Morgan and Misty exchanged an alarmed look. Terrible how? Morgan asked. What were her symptoms? She was unconscious, for one, Kapler said, and that pyrokinesis of hers was running out of control. Burned Ezekiel's arms carrying her in, and the staff had to put on protective suits to work on her. Where is she now? Misty asked, her voice urgent. She's down in the labs at Kapler Pharma, Kapler said, nodding toward the west end of the tower. It was the safest place for her. We have some climate-controlled chambers down there, refrigerated and fireproof. I've got my best doctors working on her case. Morgan's mind raced. She listened to the Baron's heartbeat, watched his lips, sniffed for changes in his scent. The man was telling the truth, or at least what he believed to be the truth. And what lies did Ezekiel tell you, Baron Kapler? Did he strangle Julia until she passed out, or sedate her with some drug? Morgan wouldn't have put either option past the boy. He seemed to have the instincts of a comic book supervillain. Baron Kapler, Morgan said carefully, would it be possible for us to see Lady Julia? Kapler's brow furrowed in suspicion. We won't cause any trouble, Misty said. We thought Julia was being held here against her will. We came to take her to the Lightbringers so she can get treatment for her condition. The Baron rocked back in his chair, the astonishment clear on his face. The Lightbringers know about this? They know how to cure this? Not cure, Misty said quickly. Not completely. But we've been working with Janus on this, and we've found a way to... to stabilize Julia's condition. Without the treatment, she'll die in a matter of days. Kapler stroked his beard thoughtfully. And Lady Julia consented to this treatment? That's why we were at the meeting with Janus and the detectives. They've been working on the problem for a while now. We were just working out the last couple details when Zeke showed up and... She gestured futilely. Did his weird, crazy, possessive thing. Grabbed Julia and took off. He <sighs> said something to me about the Lightbringers and the Vampire Syndicate working together to steal the rift from us, Kapler mused. Sounded like a fat lot of horseshit to me. I told him to go get a good night's sleep and we'd talk in the morning. The boy gets the strangest ideas sometimes. He quirked an eyebrow in Morgan's direction. I dare say you wouldn't touch this with a stick if Malcolm Ardvalos were involved. Morgan shuddered. 
You know me better than your son does, Lord Baron. Ha! No doubt of that. He scratched at his beard again. Well, if the Lightbringers can take this problem off my hands, I'm happy to let them. Especially if it means you'll drop this nonsense about a were-guild. I give you my word as a Halloway, Misty said seriously. If you let us take Julia to the Lightbringers for treatment, I won't pursue the were-guild against Zeke. She offered the Baron her hand. After a moment's hesitation, he took it, each gripping the other's forearm in the traditional manner of the nobility. Kepler must have felt the inhuman skin and claws beneath Misty's glamour, but if it bothered him, he gave no sign of it. Fine. I'll take your word, Lady Halloway. The Baron pushed back his chair and rose, then drained the rest of his tea in one draft. Now let's go talk to the doctors. The sooner I get you all out of here, the sooner I can get some goddamned sleep. And that's where we'll stop for this week, folks. What's going to happen to Julia? Will Morgan and Misty be able to help her? Or have they arrived too late? And what will Zeke have to say about the bargain Misty struck with his father? The mystery continues next week. It's been a crazy, scary week all around the world the latest in a crazy, scary year. One thing is certain, though. Whether the economy goes up or down, whether the left wins or the right, whether great nations rise or fall, good stories help to keep us going. So, here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 5,305 words this week, over the course of 7.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 707 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I've gone 18 days without breaking my chain. I continued working this week on my sci-fi ghost story, The Nearness of You. It's not quite finished yet, but it's close. The story is now over 5,300 words, and I think it's about 75% done. I also wrote two new author commentaries this week for the Patreon feed. The first one was about the origins of Metamore City's noble families. That one has already been released. The second is about the Empire of Metamore's political system, and how the nobles are involved in it. That one will be released this week. You can read all of my author commentaries by becoming a Patreon patron at the $3 a month level or higher. All you need is a credit card or a PayPal account. Just go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make a pledge today. And now, the feedback. Hey Chris, it's Sarah Pastorosa. I wanted to actually give some feedback on the Patreon-only thingamajigger, but it's not any way spoilery, so if people aren't patrons, then well. (laughs) Anyway, what I wanted to say was I really appreciated the accent thing. I liked how you described the differentiation between the character voices, and I kept that in mind when I was reading the book Urban Legends. I was started in the beginning, and I was reading it to someone, and I did the voices based on your kind of guidelines 
and plus with the memory of how you've been reading them. And it was quite effective. I mean, I got complimented on how well I was doing the voices or whatever. And, you know, this is someone who doesn't listen to a lot of podcasts, but still, it was just kind of cool. And I feel like having a system in place like that is really smart. I found it to be helpful for me thinking about voice acting because it's not something that I have really done until the last couple of years and only then even like dabbling really. So just actually starting to take conscious looks at things and constructions of voices is really fascinating. Thanks, Sarah. I'm glad you found that post helpful. And it makes me super excited to hear that you're reading the stories to other people. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen the author commentary Sarah's talking about, it's on the feed at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. This post is visible to all subscribers who pledge at least a dollar a month. So if you're interested, head over there and check it out. Anyway, I did really like the last chapter. I didn't listen to this new one yet, but Morgan and Misty and finishing each other's sentences and all of that, like, that was great. I really appreciated the fact that Morgan DeNoble is really coming back in, because from my recollection, it wasn't as big of a thing that we really got into in previous stories until more recently, because I'm just thinking about, like, our introduction to her and Welcome to the City. Honestly, I, I need to reread Huntress. Well, that's what I'm up to next in the story collection, so yay! But basically, I'm just saying I don't remember a ton of times where it wasn't just side reference as opposed to actually seeing her in that light and seeing how much it was a part of her upbringing. So anyway, so I'm looking forward to seeing what they're coming, they came up with and what they're working on. Well, now you've seen what Misty and Morgan's plan is. Next week, we'll start to find out how well it worked. And you're right. This is a side of Morgan that we didn't see much of in the early stories. Welcome to the City showed how she fit into the police department, and Huntress showed how she dealt with her life as a vampire. Things Unseen was really the first opportunity I had to get into the noble's world, and it gave me a reason to pull Morgan back into that circle. When Dawn Phoenix finishes writing Mirrors, and she confirmed to me a couple of weeks ago that she's going to start the rewrite soon, then you'll get to see more of her backstory in the world of the nobility, including her relationship with John. I don't know about you, but I can't wait. And I also just like the fact that they use Morgan for physical strength or getting off for helping them dig out stuff. I mean, with all of her other talents, it's easy to forget that she has that sort of fortitude just due to her supernatural abilities. But, like, damn, she's got a lot in that package, so yay! Although, of course, she's not perfect, which is appropriate. So, you know, those characters end up not being realistic. Characters who are all the powerful in all the ways and blah 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 Very true. And yes, since we're now into the third act of the story, and a lot more action is about to ensue, I thought this was a good opportunity to remind the reader about Morgan's capabilities. We haven't seen her involved in many physical confrontations, and she's not a violent person by nature, so it's good to keep in mind how formidable she actually is. Anyway, so I hope you have a great day, and I'm about to listen to the next chapter. Cool. Bye, bye. Thanks, Sarah. Let's go ahead and hear what you thought of the next chapter. Hey, Chris, it's Sarah Testarossa. I just finished listening to part two of chapter 15 of Things Unseen. I did enjoy this chapter. My first reaction was, 
wee hair tendrils or hair tentacles or just weird electro current thing in the fingers. I think that's really neat the way that, like, she can kind of seemingly transmit signals and stuff through them. It makes me think of some sea creatures, maybe anemones, but I'm not entirely sure. I don't recall. Anyway, it sounds really pretty, even though it's, you know, creepy looking. I mean, as an outsider, not in this situation where it's worrying about peril and death and all that jazz. It's just fascinating. I agree. I wanted Sefi's mutation to come across as more awe-inspiring than scary. Though, of course, the things that she sees in her visions are plenty scary enough to make up for it. Speaking of death and stuff, it is cool to see that Hal and Bernard's consciousnesses live on. That's really cool, and I'm curious to see about, you know, when they get back to the Rift, if, well, if they get back to the Rift, if we'll see anything with Hal being reunited with his mother or whatever. You're right. That will be interesting to see. Sorry, gang. No spoilers on this one. I did really like Sefi's visions about the end of the world and the kind of, or the end of the, what did she say, the end of the age. The specific things that she described were vague enough that it's like, yes, this sounds like an apocalyptic thing, but then the specific things like the curtain, and it's like, huh, what could that be referencing? So it was kind of neat, and I can totally see uh, that kind of freaking people out a little bit. I did think it was kind of funny, though, how David got kind of sucked in in terms of looking for his epiphany. I'd actually completely forgotten about that, but I only recently read House Call, which I had listened to, you know, a while back. But I read House Call in the Urban Legends Anthology, where it references epiphany. So it was cool to see that referenced again, although sad that he kind of got distracted. But when he's like, oh, I see where they live in the rift or whatever, it's like, that seems on task, sort of, maybe, but then he wasn't. And it's like, oh, David. So it was kind of cool to see Kate keeping him in check, because I know I referenced way back in the earlier chapters about him keeping Kate in check. So it's good to see that as well. Like I've said before, I really like seeing how they play off each other as partners. So do I. It was nice to be able to bring David's search for his epiphany back into the narrative here. This is such an important part of who he is as a character, and why he's living here among humans. Understanding the importance of that quest is crucial to understanding why he makes the choices that he makes in the next book, The Lost and the Least. What else? The end of the chapter with Don. I kind of get why Kate was as upset as she was, or not upset, angry, but really, I don't think anything John said was really rude or anything besides it was presumptuous, but I feel like it seems at least a good chunk accurate. And I'm wondering why she's resistant to it. I mean, you said yourself in the, you know, the prose that she didn't know why she, whether she was trying to convince her, him or herself. It's like, he didn't really say anything bad. I feel like that sounds like a compliment to me, but it is very presumptuous, though, and I can understand her feeling like her privacy has been violated, so that plays into it, too. But... I guess maybe that's something that I just don't understand about her yet, that there's something else behind it, why that would bother her. I think all of us have a story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. We have a mental picture of the sort of person we are. I have these qualities. These are my strengths and weaknesses. These are the sorts of things I'll do, and these are the things I won't do. This story is important for understanding our past and guiding our decisions about the future. And when that story is threatened... It threatens our whole sense of self and our place in the universe. To understand where Kate's coming from here, you have to go back to her worldview, as she explains it to Michael in Welcome to the City. If you look at the way she talks about life on the street, 
you can see that she's lumping people into two categories, good guys and bad guys. Good guys include the innocents, the ordinary folks who are just trying to get by, and the people who protect them. Bad guys include the gangbangers, the vampire syndicate, the rogue mages, and telepaths who hurt people. Kate even says about the bad guys, quote, Eli, help me. I'd wipe them all out if I could, unquote. In her mind, that's justified, because they're bad guys. Now, we've seen that Kate is open-minded enough to judge individuals on their own merits, even if they belong to a group she usually thinks of as bad. Ms. Fallon, the succubus? She's good because she protects people. Morgan, a vampire? Also good. She's Kate's friend. She works to catch bad guys, and she never asked to be a vampire anyway. But John messes with Kate's moral worldview. He's a priest of the Church of Hedonism, a Daedra cult that uses religion as a pretext for feeding on people and taking their money. By John's own admission, his church's whole reason for existing might be to manipulate humans into ending the Dreamlands War for them. John seems like a con artist, untrustworthy, and with his offers of casual, hedonistic sexual pleasure, he's trying to tempt her to do something that would mean abandoning her duty and compromising her objectivity in an important case. All of that screams bad guy to Kate's instincts. But, at the same time, John is clearly fiercely loyal to his sister, he protects Sephi, he cares about Morgan, who Kate also cares about, and he acts concerned about Kate's health and safety. Those are good guy traits. So John is standing firmly in a gray area that, to Kate's mind, is not supposed to exist. That makes her uncomfortable. She also finds him extremely attractive, and that's even more upsetting. As she told David in House Call, she wants a nice, normal guy to settle down with. John is the exact opposite of that. So why does she want him? And then, in the midst of all this moral confusion and uncertainty, John gives voice to the fear lurking in the darkest corners of Kate's mind. What if the story she tells herself is wrong? What if she doesn't belong to the light side? What if that's why the Lightbringers always rub her the wrong way, and the officers of Kaya's empire usually drive her crazy, and the rules of the police force seem like shackles and obstacles instead of comforting guidelines? What if the reason she's more comfortable with swoop jockeys and succubi is because she belongs in their world, the world of darkness? What if the reason she wants John is because, deep down, she's a lot like him? It's a thought that she can't accept. It doesn't fit with who she thinks she is. But it fits too many of the facts for her to just dismiss it on the merits. So she does what most of us do when our worldview is challenged. She gets angry and rejects it, and dismisses the person making the challenge as unqualified to make it. Whether John knows Kate or not is irrelevant to whether what he says is true or false— but by making the argument about him instead of his words, Kate is able to ignore them. For now, anyway. 
anyway, so this was really cool. Uh, I'm excited for more. I'm really hoping that nobody else is going to die in, in terms of I want these little four little critters to be able to get back. I don't know why I call them critters instead of the, the symbiotes, but it would be nice for, you know, Bernard and Hal to be able to continue this new stage of their lives and for Misty and Sethi and Julia to be able to get back to shit and for Zeke to go and, you know, go crazy somewhere else. Anyway, so really enjoying it so far. I'm looking forward to next week. Bye. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook page is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To make a monthly pledge to support the show, become a Patreon patron at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. And if you like the show, please leave me a review on iTunes or review my books on Amazon. Believe me, it really does help. That's our show for this week. Come back next time for more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.